If you have your copy of Scripture, your Bible with you, turn to two spots. Genesis 1, first book in the Bible, and John chapter 1. John is, the Gospel of John is located in the latter part of your Bible, the last probably 25 to 30 percent of your Bible. It follows Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It precedes Acts. And I want you to know if you have a Bible with you and you're not familiar with Scripture, hey, it's okay. You know your Bible actually has an index there in the front. will guide you to the right spot. So use it. If you don't have a Bible, you have a bulletin. It's printed there. If you don't have a Bible or a bulletin, we got you today. It's going to be on the screen as well. Before we read the Scripture passages... I want you to be aware of an important survey that was done in 2022 by Legionnaire Ministries in cooperation with Christianity Today. In fact, it's done uh, every other year. It's twice or every two years, if you will. And it's about beliefs among evangelicals and the average American. And the interesting thing about this particular survey that was just done here in 2022 is that we are seeing that evangelicals are answering questions in more and more non-biblical ways. I want to offer you a couple of examples, and you might test your own heart here, like you're not quite sure, so true or false, I'm not asking you to raise your hand or anything like that, but just in your own thoughts, what do you think about these two questions? Question one was posed, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Almost 40% agreed with that statement. I'm talking about evangelicals. All right? Second one, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. More than 50% of those surveyed either said they somewhat or strongly agree with that. Let's see what the Bible actually says about that. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 reads thus. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then in verse 3 of that same chapter, it reads, And God, what's the third word? Said. God said. What you're seeing here is God creating, and he does so by speaking. God communicates to his creation. Then John 1, as we are in this Christmas series, Pastor Brad read it last week. John 1, verse 1 reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See the similarities between Genesis 1 and John 1? That is no accident. John is wanting the reader to see something. In fact, there are several somethings that in no other place within the Gospels is the truth of Jesus put forth in this way. The book of John is the most theological of the Gospels. John wants you to see something behind the birth of Jesus. In fact, before the birth of Jesus, 
that really, really matters. In fact, it matters so much that apart from it, Christianity and Christmas itself are completely irrelevant. They are not tagged together. In a bold way, John tells us something about this word that's contrary to what you might think if you believe that Jesus was created by God. A special man of some sort, uh, just a really good teacher, a prophet even, or a founder of a new religion. John actually tells us about that special difference in 1.14. John 1.14. Look at what the Bible says. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now look back, look at that verse again. I want to invite you to with me to mark it up. If you mark in your Bibles or in your bulletin, wherever you have, I want you to consider carefully some things that are said here and said distinctly. Verse 14, the Word became flesh. This long pregnant pause is there intentionally. If this does not stupefy you, if it does not shock you, then your concept of God is not actually biblically informed. It's small. This huge blue ball that we are resting on was made by him speaking it into existence. This ever-expanding universe that we're a part of, the billions and billions of stars and planets all spoke, boom, there it is. Those points and all the space in between it, his. The author of every sunset that's occurring 24 hours a day. All his handiwork. He does it with no sweat. That is the biblical God revealed. And then there's this. John uses a word here that actually is almost a crude word. It's not fanciful. It's not idyllic. It's not poetic. He uses the word flesh, which is the same word in the Greek that we get the word carnal or carnivorous. It means pure flesh, bone, and blood. God became flesh. What's the greatest miracle in the Bible? What do you consider? Is it the parting of the Red Sea? Is it creation itself? All the miracles that we see Jesus do and what's replete throughout Scripture, the raising even of the dead, even the resurrection of Jesus, is that the greatest miracle? 
I contend it is not those things, but it's actually what we see here. The greatest miracle is God took on flesh. He comes to us. God does not move away from his creation. God moves toward us. God does not abandon his work in humanity. Even though there's sin, God does the imaginable. God gives himself to a rescue plan with flesh, with bone, and his blood. And if that's not shocking enough, consider what else John says in this verse. John says something next that may even be more dumbfounding. And he dwelt among us. I invite you to underline that, circle that. He dwelt among us. And then this next word, the first time it occurs, in that verse, we see the word son. The first time in the gospel that this word occurs. And John, and John goes on more than 60 times talking about the Son of God. Jesus is the only Son from the Father. And he tells us that he's full of grace and truth. John says that we have seen the glory of God. The glory as the only begotten Son of God. Grace and truth is what Jesus embodies. Charles Spurgeon considered the prince of preachers in the 19th century. He would regularly tell his congregation at the beginning of a sermon, I I can't adequately convey what's here. And I'm not trying to copy Spurgeon, but I tell you, I'm also not trying to give you some kind of false humility, nor let myself off the hook, because I'm here with this text. But it is true, I cannot do this verse justice. I'm convinced that no pastor who has any modicum of wisdom can say, I've got it, and can express it fully and adequately. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you something simply. When you look at John 1.14, you are looking at the meaning of Christmas. This is the meaning of Christmas. Now, there's lots of things about Christmas and this season that we enjoy. Oh, there's traditions of various sort. We're celebrated by many. Christmas, though, is not actually about that red-suited, jolly old guy with presents. Christmas is not about a season of gift-giving and debt-acquiring for you. It's not the chair of cheer in Whoville. Christmas is not about the lights, the trees, the smells, and the music. Christmas is also not exclusively about Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus in a manger. They're the parts. They're not the whole. Angels announcing and shepherds seeking also part but not the sum. Many of these things about Christmas are enjoyed by us all. The truth of them, yes, and all the other things that we've kind of added behind it. But only in John 1.14 is the fullness of Christmas glimpsed. John put it down this way because he wants you to understand 
that it has critical meaning for you. It has critical meaning for me. It has critical meaning to all who hear it. This verse and this chapter heralds some important things that I want you to see them today. First thing is this. John is telling us God can be known. God can be known. In the day, that first century, there was ancient philosophy even preceding the birth of Christ. Lives on today, even now, that God actually can't be known. If there is a God, he is so unlike us that any attempt to describe him in human terms, well, it's just inadequate. All that he does, all that he's done beyond us. We cannot know him, so actually, what's the use? He is so distant and so removed and so unlike us, he set into course civilization, but he's not a part of it. We are a result of what he created outside of us. Some believe that God sets it and forgets it. It was Greek philosophy then. It's replete in Eastern Orthodoxy as well. And it invades our today. It's the heart of deism. Belief in intelligent design, higher power. And here's the conclusion. Since God is beyond us and we have no ability actually to know him, then we owe little to him because he's not personal. We matter little in the grand scheme of things. But John, the apostle John, says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with, and the Word was God. This Word created. And by saying Word, which I'm going to say a whole bunch here for a moment, when we say and read the word Word, logos, is the Word, the Greek word, John's telling us something. This Word means something. It's not fairy dust. It's the same word that we get the word logic. John is saying the knowledge of God is not only possible, the truth of God can be known. God communicates, and how he does it is through the word. It is possible to know God because of the logos, but it's better than God can be known. He goes on to tell us there is so much more. He goes on to tell us that God actually wants to be known. John is telling us by writing, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is saying God wants to be known, which literally means, when you, and if you read it in the original, it would say this, God pitched his tent among us. Eugene Peterson's message translation reads like this. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. And when we think about dwelling in a tent, well, we think temporary, temporary quarters. Brad Bigney says, please, never. That's, that's Brad. Does not camp in tents. And you know, through the years, many preachers emphasize with this, the temporary nature of Jesus on earth, because tent communicates a temporary abode. 
But do you know that is not actually what John is saying here? He is saying that God in Jesus made his dwelling with us. It's the same word that's used in Revelation chapter 21 verse 3 that reads this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So God can be known and he wants to be known and that has implications. That reality invades December 11th, 2022. It comes to this building and it has implications for you. What does that actually mean? What does this mean for us? Well, the answer is found in the remaining part of the verse. In fact, all that follows in the New Testament, it's all linked out of this reality. So look in John 1:14 again. He says, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God reveals his glory to us in Jesus the Son. The very essence of God. With flesh. So when he uses this word flesh, it's a word that does not simply mean he looks human. He's kind of like a human. No, he's saying he was human. He was fully God and fully man. This word sarks is frankly carnal, blunt language that says God can be touched. God can be bruised. And God in the flesh is going to bleed. And with this startling revelation, Jesus brings to us matters of ultimate significance. Jesus tells us the truth and will give to us what we will never deserve. He will give us grace. So let me talk about truth first. Full of truth, he says. What truth do we need to wrestle with here? All of us at some time will need to wrestle with the reality of who is Jesus. Who Jesus is. John is telling us Jesus is the Son of God. John is telling us he is the pre-existent second person of the Trinity. Now born to a virgin teenage girl. He is supernaturally conceived. A miracle in itself. But it's not the same level of miracle of God actually being fully human and fully God in the same moment. Hypostatic union, fancy word, both full, same time. Make no mistake, Scripture's telling us Jesus is God's unique Son. Second truth, what Jesus does. What does this human, born in a supernatural way, born actually in an ordinary way, born by supernatural means, what does he do? He reveals what God is like. He tells us the truth about God. And hear this, 
hear this, all of you. He tells us the truth about you and what it means and how to come into right relationship with God. That's what Jesus does. So then the question begs in this truth, what are some of those truths that Jesus actually exposes about us? When you read the gospel, what do you see? I'm going to offer you just a few things to consider. Just two chapters away, John chapter 3. I'm not going to read it, but you should go read it. John 3 records a conversation between Jesus and a man by the name of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is a religious leader. He would have been well-educated, likely well-respected in the community. He, like some of you, at some point became curious about Jesus and would love to just have a conversation with him about religion. But Jesus, with Nicodemus, does the same thing that he does with us. He cuts through the curiosity, how we get confused about spiritual matters, and he tells us the same thing that he told Nicodemus. John 3, 3 says it like this. Unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus, full of truth, tells us the truth. Rule-keeping, law-abiding, nice, respectful people, They need a new beginning just like all of the rest of us that don't live that way. We all need new birth. No one of us causes spiritual rebirth. Jesus does that. It's not a do-over. Jesus invites us to a new life. And we all need that new birth. Pharisees need new birth too. See, some of you are really good at being good. You don't do things that get you in trouble. With the law, you don't do things publicly that can be seen that are questionable. You are blessed with good intentions toward people and toward your country. You don't want people to suffer well, unless they're getting justice or what you think they deserve. You are a rule follower. And when you hear a sermon about something that you need to do or read an article about how to make your life better, you know what you do? You just go do it. You do it. And you also may be exhausted. You quite possibly are an unintended Pharisee. And because you know what Pharisees are like, because you can read the Bible, and you know that they are responsible somewhat for a crucifixion of Jesus, you certainly don't like to be called one. But none of those things change the fact that at the heart of a Pharisee are actually rules. A heart for doing what's right And if you do it, well, no problem. The problem with the Pharisees is they're actually blind to their great need for the person, Jesus. They're religious, but they may not be born again. And so if you have little tolerance for failure, 
in your own life or in the lives of others? Well, try on that shoe, Cinderella. It just might fit. Jesus tells the truth to the rule keeper. Jesus tells the truth to the rule breaker. You must be born again. John 14, 6, Jesus speaking to his followers. In no uncertain terms, he says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus tells us the truth about heaven, about meeting the Father. He does not say he is part of the way, has some answers for the way, for life that makes you better in somehow. He tells you the truth about himself and what it means for the way to God. He says in exclusive terms, I am the way, the way. Heaven is for those who make their reservations through Jesus, the only way. It's about Him. It's not about law-keeping. It's not about morality. It's about Jesus. And this is the message of Christmas. He is the only way. Jesus, again, in John chapter 8, verse 24, tells us the truth. In no uncertain terms, he says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, when you look at the text, some of you have translations. The American, New American Standard shows this. Unless you believe that I am he, and the word he will be in italics. The reason why the New American Standard does it that way is because it's showing that in the original Greek, that word was not there. So Jesus is saying, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Everyone that heard that knew what he was saying. Do you know what he was saying? Hearkening back to his speak, God speaking to Moses. I am that I am. Jesus is saying, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that Jesus is God miraculously in flesh, you will die in your sins. Now, why is this hard for us? Well, it's the issue of sin, folks. I'm not better than you in this. This is what it does to us. Do you know what sin does to us? It makes us scorekeepers. Where we measure ourselves against a standard. Ours that we make up. So watch your language when you're talking about God. Here's what the language shows up like. Well, I think, but I think, I think. That's how it shows up. I believe versus what does God's word actually say. So we measure ourselves against others and to our own standards. But in Scripture... We do not see a good and bad day of measurement up in your future. Where God weighs you in a balance, like a justice balance, Lady Justice. And if it's a little bit better, good, than there is bad, he's going to say, come on, you've been a pretty good boy. Come on in here. That's not 
biblical. But it might be what you think. That's a test for a club or an honor roll. It's not abiding in God's holy presence. And sin blinds us. It blinds us to thinking that we're okay. And because it it blinds us, we don't see how it actually separates us from God and it alienates us from each other. But there's an answer for our sin problem. And the answer is not one that you discover on your own, but you believe was accomplished for you. Jesus giving himself on the cross as payment for your sin debt Jesus is God in the flesh who sets forth the rescue plan. Your penalty is death. He takes it and he gives you his life. That's what Jesus does. That's the message of Christmas. That's the core of Christianity. It's not the birth of Jesus the child, but the gift of a Savior. And unless you believe it, unless you believe it, you're going to die in your sins. But John does not simply tell us that Jesus was a truth teller. No, he tells us that Jesus is full of grace. He's full of grace. When you look at Jesus, you are seeing the manifestation of God's grace. And that grace, yes, tells us some exclusive truth, but it also reveals what I term exclusive inclusiveness. God gives grace to all and is offering it to all who will respond to the invitation. God does not keep his distance. God shows up at your door. God came near in Jesus. He's accessible. And John writes about it again over in the back of near the back of your bible 1 John his letter he says this verse 1 of 1 John 1 that which we have that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes we looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life the life was made manifest and we've seen it and testify to it and proclaim it to you eternal life. And he goes on to say that he wrote this so that your joy may be complete. What's he saying? He's saying, I see, I saw him, I heard him. And I, it wasn't just that, I touched him. He brings joy. You know Why? Because when he shows up at your doorstep, he brings grace for you. That's what he does. You know John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You've heard it. That whosoever believe will not perish but have everlasting life. Do you know what John 3, 17 says? It tells us about this grace. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then in our chapter, John chapter 1, we read verse 14, and then verse 16 says this, from his fullness, remember the fullness? Grace and truth. From his fullness, we have received grace. Wait, he doesn't stop there. Grace upon grace. 
The English does not capture this full meaning well. John is saying to us, the more grace that you get is beyond what you can fathom, and the grace that you get, he comes along and replaces that grace with more grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. He loads your wagon with grace. That's what he does. He gives it to us in Jesus. In Jesus, we do not get acceptance. We get adoption. In Jesus, we do not get pardon. We get removal of our sin. He declares us more than not guilty. He makes us more than tolerated. He actually gives us righteousness. Right standing with God. He gives us love. He gives it to us when we're sinners. He is the father running to the ruin of his son. When we run away, you know what he does? He runs after. He pursues us. When we are filthy, he comes and embraces us. Look at me. What you would not do, he does. No one is making him do it. He does this because this is who Jesus is. And he sees, he sees you. He knows you. He knows what you need. He stands ready to pour on you a love that conquers your shame and your regret. He stands ready to turn your darkest chapters of your life, that pit which you think actually defines you, He says, that does not define you. He brings rescue for the sinner. And he brings rescue for the good, the bad, and the ugly in every one of us. You sit in a place called Grace Fellowship Church. Grace is one of our big rocks. But I'm here to tell you, I am firmly convinced that grace is actually hard for us. We find out that it's hard for us when the moment calls for it. Because we are blind and broken, it's really difficult to see how great our need is and how little we actually give it to others. The scriptures tell us that there's going to be a day when Christ appears that people will cry out for the rocks to cover them. God's holiness is not going to be missed in that moment. Our great need for mercy and grace in that moment is going to be fully realized. And one of the saddest realities is how often we try to live in a way to win God's approval or we live in a way that ignores our actual Desperate need for grace. Instead of feasting on grace, here's what we do. We chew on the gravel of our personal performance. We're starving and our bellies are bloated with ignorance and pride. We need grace and Jesus shows up at our door with it. 
Revelation chapter 3. Jesus speaks truth and grace to us. It reads thus. This is Jesus talking. Behold, or look, look at this. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You don't know how close Jesus comes to you. You've heard me describe before when we look at a passage like John 1, 14, and he dwelt among us, pitched his tent. Jesus is that neighbor that this afternoon he would show up at your door, knock on it. He's got corn dip and tortilla chips. He wants to watch the game with you. And if you are grilling, he's happy to take some of that off you. He knows a little bit more about how things cook than you do. He'd be at your grill. He'd be at your dining room table. He'd be at your couch. And he brings with it, with himself, grace to meet you. He just says, I'm knocking. I'm knocking. I'm knocking. Will you open the door? And I will come in. I'm not splitting hairs about vernacular. I want you to understand this. If you sit in this room today and you desire for Christ to come in, he is ready to come and give you new life. You say, well, Brian, you don't know all the things about me. No, I don't. But Jesus does. He sees where you are. You don't have to have it all figured out. He brings truth and grace. And he asks you, will you believe? Will you say yes? Will you surrender your life? Will you turn over the keys? Will you throw open the door? Will you say, yes, Jesus, take my life. Give me new life. That is the meaning of Christmas. Let's pray. You see, all of us, Lord, in this room today, you understand every decision we've ever made, all the times we've said no to you and to others, how we choke on grace, how we don't understand our great need. Will you remind all of our hearts today that Jesus is your answer to our need. Our shame, our regret, when we sit in the ashes of our decisions, you come and you meet us. You come to give us life. Oh, Lord, will you please give life today to those that call on you today for the first time even. Will you show them that you are good and merciful 
And you give new life because of Jesus on the cross. We remember that today, Lord. Would you do it? In Jesus' name, amen.